Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I noticed when I was up here that I'd forgotten my notes. You might think that would mean you could just do it without them. We'd have a, a shorter sermon, but actually it would turn out to be longer. I would ramble and try to remember my points. And so I'm trying to save you all. Romans 6. Uh, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that you and I were much worse than we imagined ourselves to be in sin. That we were more guilty and that we were more under the power and enslaved and corrupted by sin than we imagined ourselves to be. But Christ had a comprehensive answer for all of the effects of sin on us. That the guilt of our sin is answered by His righteousness given to us as a gift, clothing us in righteousness before God, so that we stand before Him not guilty. We stand with Him or before God with the credit of the Lord Jesus Christ and His obedience. But the power of sin that remains. And, and this is something that you and I feel quite acutely. How sin and temptation affect us. Well, there is an answer in the Gospel for that also. That, that Christ's death brought you freedom from the enslaving power of sin. Now, we still feel it. We still feel temptation. And, and to say that we're not slaves to sin sounds, at least to most of us, a little bit problem, uh, troubling, because I still feel like I'm a slave to it. I still feel given to it. I still feel its power. Well, today we're going to talk about why and how the gospel gives us power to resist sin. It's in Romans 6. We're going to read in verse 15 in a moment. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the word that we read. Father in heaven, what we're going to read is your word. It is your spoken Word And so, as we read it, as, as if you are breaking the clouds open and speaking to us from heaven, help us listen to what you have said. Help us to take it in and to understand it. Illumine our hearts by your Spirit that we could gain from these words what is ours in the Lord Jesus. The, the freedom from sin. The freedom to obey you. And the life that comes from that. We pray that you would... Lead us through your scriptures and strengthen and grow and mature your church and each individual in it. We pray that you would even cause those who are here today who do not know you to see their need of Christ, to embrace what is offered to them freely in the gospel through faith, and that together we all might join in joy for our Savior and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We honor Him and we pray in His name. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. This is God's Word. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, 
You were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's Word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. My friend Matt had a, a decent job. He liked it. He enjoyed going to work. He had lots of freedom and places to have some creativity in his work. It was, as far as jobs can be, pretty fulfilling. Uh, it wasn't perfect. There were frustrations, but you can't find a job that's perfect without frustration. And so it was pretty good. And one of the keys was his boss, directly over him, was a guy who didn't like to micromanage. He was one of those who said, I want to give you the resources you need to do your job, and then I want to free you to do it. And he felt that freedom, and it was great. And he had a good relationship with his boss. The problem was the, the job didn't pay quite as much as he thought. It wasn't bad wages, but it certainly wasn't as much as he thought he could make with his skill set. And one of the vendors who provided you know, the tools they needed for their work a salesman who worked hard to build relationships, took the office out to eat, took him to special events, you know, sort of wanted to win their trust, agreed with my friend Matt. said, now, I don't think you're getting paid enough either. I, I've got this opportunity. It's a startup company. We need you to come help us. If you'll come work for us, uh, I think we can get you more money. And so uh, Matt thought, that sounds great. I've got a friend here, a guy that I've done a lot of stuff with, we're business friends, this is going to work. Well, the problem was, when he got to work for this vendor, the relationship changed. They found out that, that Joe, the salesman, was a really demanding man, and that he tended to micromanage, and he, he was especially good at blaming when uh, things went wrong, and pointing the finger at other people. And every day became a drudgery to go to work. He no longer wanted to go to work, it was disappointing almost every day. The only chances he got were days when he had to work at someone else's office to help them and he could get out from his own office. And that's just terribly frustrating. Who your boss is really, really matters. Some of you are your own boss and you're like, I have good days and bad days. You know, Who your boss is really matters. And in this passage, we get slaves and master terminology, the closest parallel we have in our lives is boss and employee. But in the spiritual realm, boss and employee is not strong enough. Slave master is. And what we see from Paul is that you, spiritually speaking, are a slave. You're a slave to someone. And who you're a slave to matters. You'll find out that what that slavery gives you are what I've titled slave wages. And I want you to see how the gospel gives you freedom in the midst of its slavery. So let's take those three thoughts. You are a slave. Now let me try to convince you of this. That doesn't sound like it's something that could be true. But the Bible says you are a slave either to sin or to God. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either sin 
which leads to death, or obedience, meaning to God, which leads to righteousness. You are a slave. Now, that's such strong terminology. I want you to listen to a couple of people who are trying to help us think what that means. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a British physician turned pastor, spent over ten years in the book of Romans before he died and couldn't finish it. Here's what he says. But you say, I'm not religious. I mean, I'm not a slave. But everybody is religious. What is your religion? Well, your religion is what you rely upon. Your religion is what you live for. It's what you hope for. Your God is that to which you give yourself, you give your time, attention, your greatest thought, your money. You live for it. It is the thing that keeps you going. It is what you turn to when life gets hard. Everybody has a religion. The question is, what is your religion? That was actually from a sermon from Jeremiah. But the point is dead on. Everybody has something they rely upon. Everyone has something they turn to to give them their guidance in life. And then it is a religious question. Rebecca Manley Pipper wrote a book called Out of the Salt Saker. She may say it with even more clarity. Listen to what she says. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Do you hear what she's saying? What you want most in life will control you. It will shape everything that you do and everything that you think. You will direct your decisions. The things that you set your heart and your desires upon will be shaped by it. Everything in your life is going to eventually orient around the basic, most fundamental desire of your heart. Let me give an example. The way you get to knowing what is the most fundamental question, the most fundamental desire, the thing that drives you, is to ask what I call the why question. Why am I doing this? Why do I want what I want? Okay? So let, let's take it easy. You all came to worship. Why? Some of you might answer this. I come to worship because I have found in the Scriptures that God is great and beautiful and I enjoy and I delight in singing to Him and praying to Him and being around other people who want to do that. It's energizing to me. God is worthy and so I come to worship. And I, it, it's, it's my desire to hear Him proclaimed and described and explained. I drink it in like it's food. Some of you may have come with a similar idea, which is this. I've come to be really aware of my own needs. And I've found the only place where my needs are met are in the Gospel Lord Jesus. I know my temptations. I know my need of forgiveness. I know my need of help. And so I'm acutely aware of my frailty and finiteness. And so when I come to worship, I'm coming because I want to hear how God addresses my heart through the songs that we sing, through the prayers that we pray together, through the scriptures that are read and taught, I need it. And so you're here. And, and if you think about it, both of those reasons, what lies at them is this sense of God's worth and kindness. And so you know something about God, and that is why you've come to worship Him. Your knowledge of God leads you, orients you, to come and worship. And so that lies as the fundamental principle, and then God is your Lord. 
On the other hand, it is likely that some of you are here because it's what I'm supposed to do. I, I know that God has commanded it, and just to be honest, I'm afraid that if I don't go to worship, God's going to make my life miserable. That He's going to take something good away from me, or He's not going to give me certain blessings that I really want. And so I've got to go to worship so that I can make sure God is happy with me and giving me stuff. Now, I want you to hear, you're doing the exact same thing the first people are doing, but the reason is utterly different. What lies at the foundation there is, I have a comfortable life that I really want, and I'm coming to worship because I think it will help me get that comfortable life. You see, what lies at the bottom of your heart, this foundational controlling principle, is I want a comfortable life. Alright, let's try another. I need to come to worship because I live in the Bible Belt. And I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I'm not here. And so I have to come and show up because I don't want, you know, those other folks to go, you know about so-and-so, I wonder why they're not here. I wonder what's going on in their life. I bet something's wrong. And so I'm worried about my reputation. And you see what lies at the controlling principle of life is, is I want a good reputation. And so I'll do the things I do to protect it and to, and to make much of it. The point I want you to see is that whatever sits at the bottom of those principles, whatever is the most fundamental one, it becomes a controlling factor in your life. It shapes what you do. In other words, everything I'm going to do, if God is my deepest desire, then I want to do things to know Him. I want to do things that please Him and honor Him. I want to walk with Him because it's, it's what drives me. But if at the bottom of my heart is my reputation... I'm going to do things that make people look at me and notice me and, and, and that will make them like me. And either way, this controlling principle becomes Lord in my life and I am a slave to it. Now, let me give you a little pastoral moment. What I think happens is that whatever is at the bottom, we tend to switch in and out. Sometimes, the Lord and His grace and love in my life are there. And it leads me to life. But sometimes I take that out from the bottom and I put something else in its place where it's my comfortable life or my reputation or, or being secure and safe or possessions that make me feel good about myself. I put something else in the bottom and I, I rotate them in and out and so it's not always consistent. And even more commonly, I put more than one thing down there and they fight with each other because these two masters want to control me. And, and it feels like war inside when I'm trying to obey one master and I'm trying to obey the other and you can't because they conflict. Because you are finite, because you are made by God, with this was your fundamental identity. This is who you are. Made by God to worship Him. That's what you were supposed to do. The most human thing in the world to do is to worship. The problem is we've exchanged worship for God for other things. And so instead of just worshiping God, I worship myself, my reputation, my comfortable life, my possessions, my feeling good about myself, and so on. And, and, and those things are at war with, with worshiping God. And the one thing I know is true of you, you worship. You worship something all the time at every moment. And what you worship 
controls everything about you. It controls how you think, how you feel, what you will do. It controls everything. And that makes it your your master. Now, the question is, how will your master pay you? What will be the wages of your slavery? Listen to what he says. Do you not know, verse 16, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either sin, which leads to death, so let's take a look at that. He says, if you give yourself as a slave to sin, if you worship things besides God, the result is going to be death. We can look at it again in verse 19. As I'm speaking in human terms, the slavery master image is just that. It's a metaphor to help you understand the spiritual realm. But he says, I want you to have this metaphor because... Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. He says, when you obeyed sin, sin says, always, I want more. I want more. Give me more. That's the goal of sin. That's the way it controls you and mashes you. It leads you to lawlessness and then to deterioration, to getting worse and worse. Let's give an example here. Let's suppose that what is driving you today is that idea of of having a good reputation among people and and that you can do that on your own. And then you get criticism. Someone sees something in you that they want to say, I don't know if that's the way things ought to be. Now how do you respond when someone begins to press in on that idea of having a good reputation and begins to show that it's, it's fragile you want to say, the first thing we do is we get defensive. What do you know? You know, I've got, I know your problems too. We begin to say, I'm going to rationalize and, and, and defend myself. And I'm creating distance between me and that person. And then I start to say, you know, I'm not really that bad. I've got all these other things going for me and I start justifying myself. You see, what I'm going to do is I'm going to protect that little space of reputation. And if you get in the way, you're an enemy. And you see it creates division. So now, not only do I protect myself, I hurt you. And I'm willing to hurt others to protect this fundamental principle, this Lord in my life that you're threatening. And I get angry. And you get all these emotions that begin to well up. You've been there, I hope. You you know what I'm talking about. There's a a movie that I really like called A Simple Plan. And in it... uh, Two brothers and a friend find a plane that's crashed in the middle of the woods in the winter. The plane is full of over $2 million. They live simple, even mostly in poverty lives. And so the idea of finding all this money really gives them dreams of a brand new life. But they know it's probably drug money, and they think, well, let's just take the money and wait. If the FBI shows up and they know it's missing, then we can get rid of the money and leave no trace of it. They would burn it, maybe. And they think, you know, if something happens, we can always get out from under it, but right now we're going to keep it in hiding and wait until we can find out that it's safe to take. A simple plan. The problem is they've got debt, they've got a few other needs that they just want to meet, and they know that money's there. Let's just spend a little bit of it. But that ruins the plan. And so they begin to fight and lie to each other. 
And they have to protect the knowledge about that money. And when someone else finds out about it, they end up committing murder. And then they have to cover up their murder. And this little simple greed blew up into deceit, into treachery, into murder. And and that's the way sin works. Every time you protect one spot of sin, you create five more. And then you have to protect those and rationalize those, which creates ten more. And sin always grows. And the ultimate result is death. It's physical death. That's the result of sin. It's spiritual death. Everything you do is a way for you to turn away from God and try to drive Him away. Now, God is gracious. If you're His child, He won't leave. He won't get further away. He will track you down and follow you. He will never leave you or forsake you. But we turn our back and we, and we begin to feel distance. Sin does that to us. And then sin has its death in our souls as we feel guilty and corrupt. Death has a, a, a break in our relationships and it keeps us from enjoying each other. You see, sin as a master leads to deterioration and worse sin which leads to death and destruction. It's the way it always is. If the controlling Lord in your life is God, it changes all of that. Look what he says. Halfway through verse 19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. And later on he says, the end of sanctification, verse 22, its end is eternal life. God's intention for you is that you would give yourself to Him, and as you make Him the most fundamental desire in your life, it leads to life everywhere else. Let me give the same example. If God and His grace and His acceptance of you is the deepest desire of your heart, and someone comes with criticism, you know what you do, right? You can say, I can hear that. I already knew my only hope with God was that He would accept me by grace. And I didn't deserve it. So you may be onto something. And here's what happens. You criticize me. And I begin to see, hey, maybe you're right. Maybe you're onto something. All it does is drive me deeper into grace. It shows me that I needed that grace more than I thought, but that grace was big enough to handle this. And I begin to enjoy God more because I've seen another place where I needed Him and He's answered me. And so there's joy in life, even in criticism. Does that sound too far-fetched? I've never felt that way, at least when I first heard criticism. I'm always defensive first because I've always got my reputation down here. But you see, when I get defensive, that's my first cue that I've got the wrong thing as the foundational principle of my life, the wrong controlling Lord. And so I try to move that thing out and I go, okay, how should criticism affect me if God is the principle? And then to act in faith, to say, I'm going to trust you, God, that I can receive criticism. You know, sometimes it just takes that work of saying the, the, the habitual thing for me the thing I'm so used to, because I used to do it. Verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, you have been used to doing it all your life. And it's habit. It's what comes natural. I present my members, my body, my mind, my heart to these other controlling principles, to reputation and to comfortable lives and and to feeling good about myself. And so I'm just used to doing it. 
But when I begin to see the sin and the death, I can say, wait, wait, wait. I've got something new to put there. Now that God has rescued me, and I'm under grace, as he said in verse 14, you're not under law, but under grace. Now that I'm accepted by God, I can have a new controlling principle. God's love and acceptance for me. That becomes what I want more than anything else. And I begin to do that battle at the bottom of my heart and say, I need my reputation to move out. I need that desire for a comfortable life to move out and to put in it the grace and acceptance of God. And then, when I get criticism, I can say, okay, I can receive that because I knew I needed grace already. You can receive criticism. You can find difficulty. You can have any of those other idols that used to be at the bottom of your heart challenged now because you can move something sturdier in there. You can move God there. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Do you hear what he's asking you? You used to be slave to sin. You couldn't stop yourself. There was no hope. But now there's a grace of God that's come and it can replace whatever used to be there. That self-sufficiency can be moved out. Something can replace it. There's a real source for freedom in your life. And it's giving yourself as a slave to the grace of God. You have that. And he's telling you the motivation to take hold of that grace. It's not because you need to earn your place with God. It is not because you need to do something to make God finally happy with you. You're not earning anything with God. It's because the old ways lead to death and God wants you to have life. You see, you may offer yourself to those old idols. You may offer yourself to those old false trusts and those old destructive ways. You may offer yourself to sin again. But you don't have to because the grace of God is made available to you. And if you trust it, you can begin to replace the sin with God. His purpose in your life is not tyranny. It's not to remove good things from you. And so if you will trust Him, He says, Obey me and I will give you life. I'll give you sanctification. I will remove the death and really fill you with it. That's the promise of this passage. Here's the question. Can you believe that? Can you believe it enough that when you see the sins begin to pop up, you can say, All right, I know why that's there. I've given my heart to the wrong thing. And I'm going to do a little battle today to try to put the grace of God there where that wrong thing is, whatever it is your thing. Will you do that battle with me and with us together? Because God has made it so that you can do that battle. He's offered you the grace you need. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that you really need to because the end is death. I want you to hear what he says. 
Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. You know, if I'm just going to live 70 years and, you know, my eyesight's gradually getting worse and worse, I might not worry about it. If I were going to live for 10,000 years, I might be really concerned because eventually I'm going to lose it. That's sort of what he's saying. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, but so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. You hear what he's saying. The sins that you feel now, even the ones that are acceptable, the ones we can have in polite company, those are going to grow and they're going to deteriorate and they're going to take over and they will kill you. But if today, with the tool and the weapon of God's grace, you will do battle, if you will say, okay, in my heart, there's these controlling principles, but I'm going to push it out with the grace of God. Even if it takes a long time, just know it's going to give you life. And that's the reason why we do it. That's the motivation. You have the grace of God, and it will give you life. Trust the Lord and obey it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us embrace this grace, that we could genuinely and truly believe these promises, that we're free to insert your grace in place of the other things that used to to, to be the, the lords of our life. We don't want them anymore. You're the only Lord that we want to be a slave to. And your wages are life, eternal life forever. Grant us the grace to take hold of your promises and to push out those false lords. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.